And so today we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, that is, after sharing his faith at Mars Hill, he went to Corinth. Uh, Corinth is, uh, is, is London. If you're in, in the motherland, Athens is Oxford. It's where you go to study. That's where C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were. But London is kind of the circus town where everything's going on. That is Corinth. If you're in California, it's, uh, you go to Stanford to learn. You go to UCLA for other things. That's what some have said. I'm just merely repeating what I've heard. And he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So there's a question, is, were they God-fearers who had come to know the Lord Jesus or were they still Jews? We don't know. Luke doesn't give us the details, but what he did see is that it, Paul went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers or literally in the Greek leather workers by trade. And so Paul goes to like-minded people. I'm assuming that these two had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and this word of Jesus has gotten out and so Claudius, Claudius sends them on their way. And so Paul is staying with Aquila and Priscilla and then he goes in verse 4 into the synagogue and he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And so what you see here is Paul's got partners in the ministry. And this comes to our our first point I want to make here is that we need partners to proclaim the gospel. This is a new friend of Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, and he had partners in the ministry and he's doing the same thing. He goes from Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens. He's doing the same thing. He goes to the synagogue, he opens the Old Testament, and he proves to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He may go to the marketplace like he did in Athens, and he shows good theology. God created the world, God sustains the world, God rules the world, and God sent his son to die for sins, and one day he's coming back, and you want to be one who follows Jesus. And you see here, Paul can't do it without partners. Paul can't do it without partners. Partners are necessary in the proclamation of the gospel. When doing ministry for the Lord along the way, we make new partnerships, right? Ashley and I left Denton. We come to Eagle and we've got new partners in the gospel. But we have our old friends. And I'm in contact with my old friends doing some ministry via the internet with my old friends. And you see that in verse 5 when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia. Here are Paul's old friends. They now show up. What did they find Paul doing? The same old thing. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. He was opening up from Genesis through Malachi and he was showing them. This one you have read about, read about this Messiah that you see throughout all these scriptures, Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53, they all point to Jesus. And what did Paul face? Just like he had faced in all the other places that he went, verse 6. And when they opposed him, they being the Jews, and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And here's a key phrase, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, didn't Paul love his people? I mean, I've read Romans, his, he would rather die than ha- without Jesus than to have them not come to know the Lord. Is, it, is Paul being harsh or is he being like Jesus? Matthew 10:14 says this, 
Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or the city, shake off the dust of your feet. Is Paul being harsh? Absolutely not. Paul's just living out what Jesus had commanded him to do. And and so Paul goes, and he goes to the Jew first, and they reject him. From now on, Paul would go to the Gentiles. That just means I'm leaving this synagogue, and I'm going out to the city streets, and we'll see later on in verse 19, he doesn't give up on the Jew. And as a dispensationalist, I have not given up on the Jew. And he went and left there, the synagogue, and he went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Again, this is one whom I assume that Paul has led to the faith. He goes to his house, and he was right next to the synagogue. So Paul, he doesn't just go far from the synagogue. He leaves, and he goes right next door. It's like, it would be like if we went and set up camp right across the street from, a, from some uh, liberal church. Hey, we're in town. Here we are. And guess who followed him? Crispus the ruler of the synagogue. He had believed the Lord together with his entire household. Notice how it says there, Crispus had believed together with his entire household. He didn't believe for his entire household. The assumption is his entire household that could believe, believed. Right? We're not assuming people who couldn't believe didn't believe. It's not like when I got saved, I'm like, man, I'm going to believe for my entire household. That's not what it meant. It means that Crispus went back into his family. There's his first mission field. He shares the faith. And those who are of age to understand and believe came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have thus far in Corinth, uh, Aquila, Priscilla, Titius, Crispus, and his household. And many other Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Notice the order. They believed and were baptized. They weren't baptized in hope that they would come to believe. They believed and then they were baptized. That's why if I were in some other church, I would be ranting and raving now about Baptists. But you see the normal pattern? It's just normal ministry. Paul goes in and he preaches from the word. Some people believe, some people reject. Those who believe get baptized. But Paul may have been getting a little bit antsy when these Jews were continuing to persecute him. How do I know that? Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Verse 10. Why would Paul want to continue to preach and not be afraid? Why would he want to be bold and proclaim the gospel? Verse 10. For I am with you, and no one will attack you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God says, speak. Don't be silent. Why? Because I'm with you. You have my presence. And in this situation, Paul, nobody's going to attack you. Now, Jesus had already told him earlier in Acts 9 that ye would suffer for preaching the gospel, but in Corinth, nobody was going to attack it. You have my protection. Not only do you have my presence, you have my protection. And finally, I have many in this city who are my people. Oh, that sounds like Jesus again. This is Jesus speaking to him, but it sounds like Jesus in the Gospels in John ten sixteen. For I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
Paul was, uh, the Lord was telling Paul, you preach the gospel because I'm with you and I'll protect you. And by the way, people are going to believe your message. Paul went on to write in 2 Timothy this, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here you have Paul being told by the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand firm because there are some people in this city who will believe. Amen? That gives us great hope, brothers and sisters. You and I need to stand firm because I fully believe there will be people in this city, town, let's call it what it is, this town, this valley, who will believe. And so what did Paul do? Verse 11, and he stayed there a year and six months, 18 months teaching the word of God among them. He stayed in Corinth longer than he had stayed anywhere else. And he stays because he has God's promise of his presence, his protection, and that God would work through him for his glory. And so not only do we need partners in the gospel, we need God's presence, that God is present with his promises. Do you believe that? When you wake up, when you go to work, do you believe and do you understand? Just as Jesus said in Matthew 28, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end. He is with you. He is with you. But when Galileo, not Galileo, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now here's what's going to happen, verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now watch Paul. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, can you just see Paul? He's ready. They're coming. This is the same thing. This is the same attack that's happened uh, in other cities. And here goes Paul. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he's almost stopped. And Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions, now watch what this governor of this city thinks. Since it is a matter of questions about words and the names and your own law, i.e. not Roman law, see to it yourselves. Here's a guy who wants to have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It's just words on a page. You're just talking about Messiah. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I refuse to be a judge of these things. So here's Paul getting ready to give his defense, uh, as he will do in Acts 22, 23, and all the way through 28. He'll give his defense every time he has an opportunity. He's getting ready to speak. He's like, and then this politician steps in and indirectly defends him. And he drove them out of the tribunal. Now watch what happens next. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. What, what is going on? Who is this Sosthenes character? He's either A, the leader of the synagogue and an unbeliever, or B, he was a believer. One of the two. Why did they beat him? Can I give you a little sanctified imagination? Here's what I think happened. They get thrown out of the tribunal. Here's a ruler, an unbelieving ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, who comes out and they beat him. Just beat him silly. And Paul's there. And Paul, I don't know what, what it looks like, but Paul picks him up, 
shares with him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Sosthenes comes to know Jesus. How do I know this? Because if I turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and if I read the very first verse, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. If those two are the same, that may be how it happened. But what you see here is God's working through politicians, believe it or not, God's working through politicians to move along his sovereign will. He got through Claudius, he got Priscilla and Aquila to Corinth where they could help Paul and be a partner in ministry. And here's Paul getting ready to speak. And through Gallio, uh, he indirectly uh, gets Sosthenes to Paul. God's at work. Do you see God at work in your own life? Are you aware of God working for the gospel in your life? Because then in 18 through 22, we're going to see him make just mundane progress. There's really nothing exciting in these verses. Um, The Bible, I think, is full of excitement. So don't hear me saying this is a boring part of Scripture. Don't hear that. It's just if you read it, you just... Things don't just jump out at you. But it's amazing what you can get when you read it slowly. After this, so after all this commotion, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And so Paul stays longer than he stayed in any other place because he understood God told me to not be silent and speak. God told me I wouldn't be attacked. He even proved it when I was getting ready to defend myself, but he had a politician in a sense defend me. And now Paul is ready to leave. And at Sincre, he had cut his hair and he was under a vow. Luke gives it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven words. And he moves on. He cut his hair and they came to Ephesus. But you read the commentaries and everybody was, was Paul under a Nazarite vow? Why is he cutting his hair? There are a few details. So my first encouragement to you, Luke didn't give you very many details. I assume he's just moving the the story on, but there are many people who want to comment on Paul. Was he under a Nazarite vow from number six? And is this why he cut his hair? I think the simplest, easiest answer is probably, and much like he had Timothy circumcised, here's Paul wanting to be all things to all people. And so he does, and he cuts his hair. This is descriptive of what happened to Paul. This is where it gets weird in evangelical America. This is not prescriptive about haircuts. I mean, it's not the official haircut of EBC to go shave your head. That's not what we're talking about here. This is just Luke moving the story on, but it is amazing. He gives it 11 words, but people will spend 11 pages on a commentary on what that was all about. It's It's neither here nor there. And they came to Ephesus, verse 19, and he left them there. And he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. You see this. Paul does the same thing. And if you've been coming to church here for a while, maybe you're kind of at a place where you're like, man, all they do every Sunday is they just do Sunday school and then a service. And then they have small groups. And you may be thinking, this is kind of boring. God works through the boring. And guess what? If you come back next Sunday at 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock, my friends, 9, we're going to be doing Sunday school, and then we're going to have a church service, and then we're going to do small groups. And if you come back, 
a month from now, guess what? We're going to be doing Sunday school. We're going to be doing church service. And we're going to have small groups. God works through the majesty of the Monday. We have so bought into, it's got to be bigger, bolder, brighter. Praise the Lord there was a technological hiccup this morning. Because the show still goes on, right? Thank you, gentlemen, for all your work, all y'all back there. I said all y'all. We're going to do the same thing. And we're going to do the same thing. When I got here in 2009, on, on March 1st, we began in Philippians 1.1, and we've preached through about 13 books of the Bible over seven years, and we're still going to do it 13 years from now. What are you guys doing? Sunday school? church service, small groups. Boring. I know. God works through the boring. So many people, I don't want to go to church. so boring. What could be boring about hearing how God worked through partners and his promises for the proclamation of the word? What could be boring when we get in next week? You got the seven sons of Sceva. They get beat up, silly, and left naked. It's in the Bible. What can be bored about that? I love what one of our elders said. If you come to church or if you approach your Bible and you're bored, it ain't the Bible who's boring. I'll just leave it at that. Verse 20. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. I love this. You mean Paul said no? Paul said no. My friends, this is just a, just a little insight. This is extra. This is bonus. It is a divine thing to learn to say no. Just, can you do that? No. I love it when we ask people to do ministry. They said, nope, I can't do that right now. I've got a, enough going on. Praise the Lord. Learn to say no. There are a lot of yes people. I know, I've been here seven years and I know some of you. Some of you are yes people. You just can't say no. Acts eighteen twenty. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he said, no, just say no. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you. And I love this, if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Let me just, every time I see God's will, I have to talk about God's will because every, I want this to be clear. There is the revealed will of God. It is in the scriptures. Dr. John MacArthur said, you can know God's will. He wants you to be saved, sanctified, submissive, serving, and you will suffer. That's it. He wrote a little book. It's about that big. It's called Found God's Will. And well, is it the will that I should marry this person? If the Lord wills. But this whole idea, God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be serving, submissive, that is under the authority of a local church, and you will suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. That's the will of God. Well, what about, should I buy this house? If the Lord wills, pray about it. Do, do, do you have the money to buy it? Buy it. Um, but w- one thing I just, we just heard this week, my brother's interviewing for some churches and some things happened and there was another guy who said, well, we prayed about it for two days and we just didn't think it was God's will. Could have been. How do you know? You don't know God's secret will. Just say, we decided not to. We, we said no. 
And so Paul says, if the Lord wills, he's trusting. God's in control. I'm going to plan, but I'm going to hold those plans with an open hand. Too often, we, we, we mix up God's revealed will that we can know, and there's no changing it. It's called the scripture. In this area, gray area where God can and can't work, and that's okay. Here, let me give you an encouragement. If you're heading, if you're in school or if you're in college or you're young and you've got to make a big decision, you pray for God to uh, show you wisdom and then make a decision. That's the Lord's will. But what if I make the wrong decision? That's God's will. But I made the wrong, that was, it was God's will for you to learn from that bad mistake. Make a decision. God guides by making us wise. What he doesn't do is want us to do hocus pocus with his will. Paul says, hey, I plan on it, but I may not be back. I just hold that loosely. And so he sets sail for Ephesus. It is a divine thing to be careful and not to make promises you can keep and to say, I plan on it, but I may not be able to make it if the Lord wills. God's will is not hard. It is revealed in Scripture. Outside of that, let's not try to make our decisions more than what they are. When you and I make a decision with the mind of Christ, it is God's will. There's no plan C for the... Like I was on, like that young man, Matt Murr, every decision he made, that was God's will. He wasn't on plan, he wasn't on track D for Christianity and then... He got back on track A. God was guiding every decision, even through a seventh grader who did satanic worship. That blows my mind. And God was working through. And then a little girl said, come to church. Reminds me of Naaman in Second Kings. The little servant girl. Hey, if my master would go speak to the man of God, he'll heal him. If you'll come to church, you'll see the truth. Oh, it may be mundane. It's messy, but you'll see the truth. And so in verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. We see that place of Antioch as his normal place. And so my encouragement to you through all this is let us all press on. Life is not supposed to be these peak experiences that happen all the time. I love the fact that we live in the valley. It is a perfect illustration of what you and I should live like. We live in the valleys. We live in a very um, normal world. That's where we're at. That's where God has you. And that's very good. That's divine. It is God's will. And so we press on. It is mundane not anybody, I mean, outside of a stress, that was the, I had a stress fracture last week, but nothing really exciting after that. And that's okay. I think we've bought into America. I mean, with the, with the, if you watch anything on TV, there's everything scrolling. You can't really focus. We just bought into this idea. It's always got to be exciting. Always got to be doing something all the time. It's always got to be different. And what you see here in these first uh, 22 verses of 18 is Paul did the same thing day in, day out. If I were going to encourage you, just off the cuff, I, tomorrow when you get up, if you're a morning person, re- read your Bible. From what you read, pray to God. 
intercede for your family, go eat breakfast, sing a song, put on a little Toby Mac, cut a rug if you want to, go to work. If you're a kid, go to school, open your books, pray, God, show me how to do math and and do it. You You go to work, you get to your cubicle, you get to your desk and you, God, may I be a witness for you today. I know nothing spectacular may happen, but I just want to be a good witness for you. And maybe, just maybe, someone will come by and say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? I learned about Jesus. And then hear the crickets chirp. (laughs) Whatever it looks looks like for you, it may look different for everybody, but it's just a normal day. And you work hard and you get to the end of your day and you come home, you eat a decent meal, you have Rocky Road ice cream, you pray with your kids and you go to bed and you get up and you do it again. And you do that over and you do that over and you do it over again. I've talked to people, uh, people have often asked, how, do, how does one learn the Bible? How does one get a good handle on the scriptures? Wanting that silver bullet. How, how do you do it? Read it. Fascinating. How do you get that strong sense of faith? Pray. What do you pray? And then they want that silver bullet prayer. Is it acts? Is it pray? What acronym can I use? It's, for me, I went through a period in my life where I set up a chair because I needed that physical reminder. Jesus is right there with me, and I'm just going to pray. You, you read the Bible, you pray, and then when it comes to making a decision, you say, Lord, let me make the right decision. It ain't that difficult. It's pretty mundane, but it's absolutely majestic. Do you think before that pastor said to that congregation, anybody who had set up for that retreat, had set up for that church service, had helped set up for that baptism, do you think anyone was thinking, I had a part in that kid's story. They were just doing their job. They were doing their duty. Hopefully they were doing it with a smile. And all of a sudden he captures it. You're part of that story. I want to see a lot of those happen here. But guess what? The church is not only mundane, but it can be, it can be messy. Because there's a couple letters in the New Testament. First Corinthians, if you want to go there now, we're going to read the first nine verses of Corinthians just to set the tone. This is one of Paul's toughest letters. Anybody, how many of you in here have read 1 Corinthians? How many of you know that this is not an easy book? This is a difficult book. It's a book of correction. But let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. There he is. I think that's the same guy. Because Paul was in Corinth when he was beaten to a pulp. And now he's writing to Corinth. I'm assuming that Paul, those are the two. But some commentaries say it's a common name, so it may not be him, so we don't want to push it too far. To the church of God that is in Corinth and to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice, they're sanctified. It is a done deal. 
to those who are sanctified, past tense, done deal. You have been made holy. You've been washed clean. But he's going to encourage them on to press on. We operate out of what God has already done. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. You Corinthians have it all, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking any gift. It would be like we had all the gifts in this church. Paul's saying, you guys have it as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. Don't miss this, verse 8. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. I don't know how I'm going to make it. Jesus will sustain you. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this season in life. Jesus will sustain you. And you know, not only will he sustain you, but on that day, on the day, can't you imagine the day? The day we're going to get there, we're going to see him face to face. And I don't think we're going to get there and we're going to hang our heads. I think it's going to be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is all about the glory of God, how he worked prior to creation, in creation, up to the point of your salvation right now for the rest of your life. It is God who's doing a great work in you. Does that remove us from our responsibility? Absolutely not. And so Paul sets up, I wanted to show you that he sets up the, this messiest of letters. With you guys are sanctified. I have great hopes for you. Paul was a man of grace and truth. And in 1 Corinthians, you see, you're going to see 12 things. 12 things you're going to see, and I I got these from this book, 12 Challenges Churches Face by Dr. Mark Dever. It is a wonderful book on this letter. Look at it. You can read it. It's It's not thick like Gordon Fee's commentary. It's a little thinner. This is a wonderful book, and he shows 12 things, and I think they're 12 things I want to present to you that I want you to think through in your own life. Where, 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 what are the challenges in my life? Number one, as a church, there can be forgetfulness. They, they can forget that they were sanctified. They can forget that they had these spiritual gifts. They can forget that Jesus sustains them. God will do it. They can forget. We can forget. My mother used to say, count your blessings. And I used to think, my mother says some of the funniest things. But then I actually grew up and had kids, and I'm like, Mama wasn't the funny one. I'm the funny one. Have you forgotten your blessings, beloved? Have have you forgotten who's blessed you? Have you forgotten how God has blessed you? Do you know anyone around you who's forgotten their blessings? Maybe your encouragement and edification this week would be to encourage somebody who needs to remember their blessings. And then he goes on into a big section of it on division. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. And Paul just talks to them very directly. I didn't baptize any of you. And he talks about you guys are being divisive in ways you should not be. There is a time and place when they're going to say the Bible isn't, uh, the Bible's full of errors. We, we can just learn from it kind of as a historical document. No, that's when we divide. But he said, you guys have no reason to divide. You're making 
you're making superheroes out of just normal men. Apollos, Paul, Peter. There's only one, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you can't learn from people, right? Um, I, when I was pursuing Ashley, I lived in Denton and she lived in Dallas and I would have 45 minutes. I'm like, what am I going to do with my time? And I stumbled literally on some tapes. Tapes, young people, are about this size. They're amazing. We called them cassettes in our days. Uh, I had a, I had a ghetto blaster with dual cassettes. Never mind that. But I would put these tapes of John MacArthur in the 91 Geo Prism with windows. Actually, windows, you actually used to do this. It's amazing. You had to have strong arms. And I would listen. 45 minutes down, 45 minutes back. And the father of, she was staying with a friend of hers. That father had a, like, I'd pull out a drawer and there were, he didn't have them organized, but there were just tape after tape after tape. And so that doesn't mean I can't learn from him. And then when I got to Denton Bible, I was introduced to this guy named John Piper. And I was like, who's John Piper? And then when I first read Piper, I was arguing with Piper. But then God opened my eyes and said, wow, he really does defend everything he does from Scripture. So that doesn't, that's the, this, I, no division doesn't mean you can't have heroes. One of my personal heroes, Mark Dever. If you want to know how a church should be done, go read anything. And he doesn't just write to pastors. He writes to all of us. Then, uh, what is it called? Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Nine Marks of a Healthy Church Member. It's good work. And so what he's saying here is all those men, the MacArthur's, the Pipers, the Bags, the Devers, they better be pointing to Jesus because that is the person that we circle around. And then he goes on and he talks about imposters, that true teachers understand the gospel, they model the gospel, and there are people around them that they're teaching who start to model the gospel. That is a, in my own life, I wonder, I think the message I'm bringing every week is cross-centered. It lifts up the glory of God in the face of Christ through the power of the Spirit according to the Word of God. I hope in my own life I'm living a cross-centered life. I look around and I see people who are falling deeper in love with Jesus. I see people who ask questions about the big issues of faith And then all of a sudden they're asking me today, should I go check out seminary? Now, it doesn't mean you have to go to seminary to be a faithful follower of Christ, but they're they're captivated by the word of God. And then he talks about sin, good old-fashioned fleshly living. And this is where many churches in America fail because they won't do discipline. Issue going on, there's a big rug, let's just... If we do this, we might lose some of our people. It's just, there's a call in the Christian church to discipline those who are not acting like believers. And when, trust me, when you stand for what is right, it is not right for you to divorce this person. Trust me. Even people in the church are going to think you're an idiot and they're going to think you're doing wrong. But you've got to stand up and say, that ain't right. Not because I said so, because that says so. And you've got to do it with grace and love, but you've got to do it. Because if you don't do it, you get a perverted church like Corinth. And then he talked about asceticism in seven. Should I marry? Should I not marry? And he said, some of you should stay married. 
And then some of you should not get married. And that's okay. And then in six, he talks about disobedience. And I love this. In this summer, Jim preached on the respectable sins. And that's what Paul talks about here. Are you just going to go through life and you're not going to you're not going to drink, you're not going to smoke, you're not going to chew, you're not going to go with girls who do, that old Baptist thing. But Jim says in his sermon, are, are you pursuing holiness? Is that something that's on your radar? Is that something you want to be holier by the end of the year than you were at the first of the year? By the power of the Spirit in accordance with the Word, but your effort. And he wondered, were people going to take that the wrong way. And I said, I don't care how they take it. Just deliver it with love. And he did. But it was a high call. Go back and listen to it. It's a high call for us to abide in Christ, assess where we are, and carry on. And then in seven, here's the one that can hit the church smack in the face. Legalism. Oh, it's not outright rebellion. But what legalism is, is a self-righteousness that basically says, I am who I am in my own power, and I do all these good things in my own power. Let me read you a couple quotes on legalism. If I step on your toes, it's not me, it's just what I'm reading. For the legalist, morality serves the same function that immorality does for the antinomian. Little definition, the antinomian is one who lives by no law. Or the progressive, the, one, the liberal. So for the legalist, morality serves the same function as the liberal, namely as an expression of self-reliance and self-assertion. Catch this. Legalism is more dangerous than a more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like one. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in the world. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient, depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcome in the church. Legalists love to hear their morality extolled in the church. Tim Keller says, one of the greatest things you may need to do is not just repent from sin, but the sin beneath the sin. If you show me a reading plan that's got all the check marks on it, and your life is no better than those outside the church, perhaps you're a legalist. You're just going through the motions. If you're so nice and self-righteous that any talk of hanging around somebody other than nice and self-righteous people, you're probably a legalist. It's a serious thing in the church. And it comes into, well, you've got to raise your kids this way. Really? You've got to do that? That plan? What about this plan? And it comes in, you got to read your Bible this way. One thing you will never hear from me, ever, is go read your Bible and then do it my way. 
You're not me. <laughs> I'll give you all, I'll give you suggestions. I'm just encouraging you to read your Bible in the power of the Spirit, but you'll never say, you need to read a proverb a day and then a, five psalms a day. You need to memorize 42,000 scriptures. That's just legalism. That's just self-righteous. It's wrong and it's gross. And it's happened in this church in the past. Let me just say that, in the past. Here's two questions to think about. If you're one of those antinomian, progressive, free spirit, you really don't follow the law, the word of the Lord, ask yourself, can I do what I do for the glory of God? I used to minister to young singles for seven years and they would, get, they would start dating and they would start dating and doing what they do when they date. And the question was, oh, how close can we get, right, and not cross the line? I said, that is a horrible question. That's a horrible question. How about how much can you glorify God in this relationship? Because they would come, well, well, is that wrong of me to do? Oh, my goodness, why are we even having this discussion? conversation, young people, if you're out there. That's not the question. Que- can I glorify God? Can I? This was the common one. Can we kiss and still honor God? Can you kiss to the glory of God? Can you in your conscience lock lips with somebody that ain't your wife or husband to the glory of God? I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> And then for those of you who may be just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you've got a a list for everything, here's my question to you. Are you doing what you're doing to the glory of the Lord? Are you doing it to accomplish something? You may need to do the exact same thing, but you may need to change your heart motive. Are, Are you doing what you're doing because you are so convicted by the scriptures and you're doing it? And here's the real test on that. The real test is if you're doing it for the glory of the Lord and somebody else comes along and they do it just a tad bit different, you rejoice in how they do theirs. You don't compare. The minute you start comparing, that's a big one. Uh, Second or eighth, autonomy. That's another big one. Individualism in the church. I'm going to come and give what I can do when I can do it because it's all about me. And you've heard me say it before. Me, me, me. I love myself. I got a picture of me on my shelf. And it's all about me. And Paul says to the Corinthians, it ain't about you. It's about the bigger body of Christ. Then there was thoughtlessness. They just weren't giving thought to the great things of the church, namely in that section, the Lord's Supper. And then selfishness. Maybe you haven't seen, but just Google the me monster. And Paul says, no, no, no. You've been using your gifts for yourself. It's all about you. And finally, he ends with the majesty of death, that death is reality and the resurrection is real. The resurrection gives you new life and the resurrection is going to happen to you. And finally, in an insight that Dever gave that I never saw was In 1 Corinthians 16, he was trying to combat against the decline of the church. Church is normally what happens. A church is planted. It just kind of grows a little bit. And then there's this incline and it climbs and maybe hits a, a plateau. And then it continues. And then there's this point where it starts to decline. 
And you can, I've seen it happen. Everything's going well. We're, we're walking in the spirit and we're, we're preaching the word of God and we're doing evangelism. And then we get to a point where the way we do it, it takes, is more powerful than the why of what we do. And that's when we stop and then churches decline. And so he calls people in this last chapter to invest in people, to, to carry out a vision, and to resource it. He literally, Paul does it, he talks about money. And he bores his son who's in the front row. He talks about money. Money. There's a thousand dollars in here, or maybe there isn't. He talks about money. Collect that on a weekly basis because we need money to run the church. More on that on another day. But the point is, Paul had to deal with some issues, messiness. Paul went about his business in just the normal, mundane, ministry. He went to the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. He got beat. He went to the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. He would get stoned. You'll see he gets stoned and he's eventually going to get prison, but it's the same thing. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to get persecution for the gospel. But along the way, Crispus believes, Sosthenes believes, Aquila and Priscilla believe, Titius Justice believes, Some think his name is Gaius Titius Justice. Later on in the book, when it talks about, in Corinthians, talks about Gaius, that is that guy. But along the way, people come to know the Lord. I'll end where we began. It can be boring. It can. You can sit out there, I can sit out there, and we can say, we've seen that song before. Here he goes again. We've been in Acts. We've been in Acts, it seems like, for four years. Trust me, my friends. (laughs) There are pastors who stay in Romans for longer than that. Like, there are pastors who, if, if I would have started in 2009, would still be in the same book. So we've been in Acts for a while, but it ain't that long. (laughs) I just said eight from the pulpit. It can be boring. And I mean boring in the sense of not that it's not exciting, but it's the same old routine. Life is routine. Enjoy the routine. If you've got a baby right now, enjoy that routine because we don't have babies anymore in our house. And sometimes mama wants that routine. I'm like, we don't have that opportunity. It's routine and it's okay. And sometimes life gets messy. We are at a very sweet season in this church. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I just, I go home every Sunday just tickled. It has not always been that way. And if I'm smart, it won't always be that way. But it's, it can be messy. It can be ugly. And you can, say, you can intend to say something right and it gets received wrong and then you get pulled over and and told you need to say that differently, and you're like, you're right, that was my bad. 
We need to own up when it's our bad. But it can get messy. But in all of that, it is absolutely majestic. I don't think there's, outside of when people leave, uh, the only other thing that really gets me teared up is talking about my family, but watching baptisms. There's something special about taking a person and you take them in the water. Do you, do you get this picture? You were, you were dead. 